sin, which in one way of looking at it is kind of why we're here. A wonderful blessing we receive when we become Christians is the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I challenge anyone to find another way we're going to get forgiven of our sins, because I have yet to find one in the Bible, or one that even makes a little bit of sense for that matter. At our baptism, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all past sins. This is Christianity 101. We've all heard this before. Acts 22.16 would say, And why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins. No. Compare that to Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We know that this is how we ultimately overcome sin, by being washed in the blood of Christ. But this doesn't mean that our problem with sin is over. There are a lot of churches that teach that you do this one thing, whatever they may teach it is, and you're done. The rest of your life, you're good to go. But the Bible doesn't teach that. 1 John 1.8 says, He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Verse 10 says he was in the world. You know, that's John. That's not 1 John. That's not making sense at all, is it? Nobody knew it was John. I'm glad that somebody else caught it, probably before I did. If somebody else gets the first John before I find what If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, First John 1 John 1.8. That's a lot better. In verse 10, if you don't mind. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. As human beings, we simply are not without sin. Thanks for that. It's part of who we are. It's part of our nature. Thankfully, we have the opportunity for Jesus Christ, but we can't say, I'm sinless, I'm without sin, I'm perfect. Because for John 1, 8 and 10 tells us that that's just not the case. Satan does his best to cause us to sin. I don't even like really wording it that way, but there's not a good way to word it, because he doesn't cause it. We still make a choice at the end of the day. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. If we are to maintain a close walk with God and ultimately receive his riches of glory, he has prepared for us, we must overcome the problem of sin in two ways. By sinning less and less, notice I didn't say not at all or never again, and by knowing what to do when we do sin, because let's face it, no matter how good we get at this walk, we're going to stumble. This lesson is concerned with helping us see how sin develops and how to overcome sin with its terrible consequences. To overcome sin, we need to understand how it develops within our lives, and the Bible outlines the development of sin. One such place is James 1, 12-15. Blessed is a man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth 
death. This is kind of the problem that we all suffer from, no matter how good we or anybody else may think that we are. So as we're looking at how sin develops, it looks like, from this verse, like the first stage would be temptation. Sin doesn't spontaneously combust into action. It starts somewhere, and that's pretty much going to be temptation 99% of the time, if not all the time. Verse 14 tell, uh, shows us that temptation includes two things. Desire, or you could say lust, which suggests that you have a strong desire for something. And enticement, an opportunity and encouragement to satisfy the desire that you already have. Put in the form of a simple equation, temptation equals desire plus opportunity. You want this thing in your life? Oh, look, there's a possibility for you to have it in your life. Now we have temptation. It's simple math. Your desire meets an opportunity. You are therefore tempted. To illustrate, a small boy is tempted to steal some cookies when he wants or desires them and has the occasion or opportunity to take them. They're cooling on the rack. Mom or grandma's not looking. Nobody's in the room. All i got to do is grab it and walk out. The kid doesn't have to take it and walk out, but they really want those cookies, and they're there, and nobody's watching. Desire and opportunity have met. The temptation becomes stronger if he really, really wants them badly. They're his favorite kind, and nobody's giving him a cookie all day. He really has got to have these cookies. I'm seeing grown-ups out there mouth-watering thinking about these cookies, because they haven't had a cookie yet today either, and I feel them. I haven't had one either. We're going to have to have cookies at night, church. Somebody who bakes remember this. So you've got your occasion. You've got your temptation because you want it. And because the opportunity is there, man, you don't just want it. You really want it for whatever the reason may be. So because temptation has become stronger because they want it, you want it so badly, and there's a good chance of getting them without being seen, the temptation is getting pretty bad here. But note at this stage the development of sin actual sin has not yet been committed. Just because this child really wants a cookie and the cookies are there and they know grandma's in the bathroom and they know they can get away with it, they haven't actually sinned yet. Temptation of itself isn't sin. It's not a sin simply to be tempted. Jesus himself was tempted. As uh, we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Sin itself doesn't exist from simple temptation. Hebrews 2.18 says, For in, in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. We all know Christ was without sin. Well, this is just two spots in the Bible that talks about him facing temptation. Temptation alone does not make you the sinner. That's when you get to the second stage of sin itself. We desire it, and our desires conceived. That can give birth to our sin. James 1.15, when the lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We just got more math going on here. You take that... Uh, temptation, and you add to it an action, well now you've got sin, and you take that sin, and you add to it consequences, now you've got death. People are going to hate math when I get done today, but it's just so simple. It becomes sin when we act and yield to the temptation. We give in to that temptation, and we move forward with an action. So sin involves the added step of some sort of action on our part. So it would be one of the fancy math problems. In parentheses, you've got desire plus 
opportunity. And then on the other side of the parentheses, you have plus action. So after you've added together your opportunity with your desire, then if you add sin, uh, action to it, now you sin. So sin involves the added step of some, some part of action on our part. And don't think of it like action like when you're first learning about verbs. It may not be a physical action. That sin could still take place just in your brain. It depends on what the desire was and what the opportunity was. The action can take form in many, many ways. It doesn't have to be something that can be seen. It just has to be an action that you have volunteered for. So sin is desire plus opportunity plus action. Once you add the third one in, then you've got your sin. The third stage involves the consequence of unrepented and unforgiven sin, and that would be death. When sin is full grown, that's what it brings forth. James 1.15 again. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The death spoken of here refers to a spiritual separation from God. The Bible's not saying if you sin at 4.03 p.m., you won't be breathing at 4.04. That's not in the Bible anywhere. I've never read it once. Spiritual death will occur, though, and that's a spiritual separation from God. The separation occurs first in this life. Isaiah 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have separated you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that you will not hear. That's bad enough in and of itself to be separated from God in this life, but if we die physically while separated spiritually, then we will experience the second death, and that's something you just never want to have any part of. That involves the eternal punishment. Revelation 21.8 For the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death. As human beings, we don't really group things like that. We look at some of these real bad ones, and we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, murderers, that's horrible. Well, in the same verse, the Bible includes liars in it. How many people think, well, that's just a white lie, that's not a big deal? Well, Revelation 21.8 says being a little white liar is just as bad as being a murderer when you come to the next life. Sin is sin, all sin has the same wage. You don't get to say, well, you only had a little sin, so we'll just... We'll take you over here and give you a little spiritual time out, and then you can move on to heaven. No, if you die in your sin, you die in your sin, no matter how big or small you thought that sin was. I was over there yawning, and I thought Jazzy was going, <gasps> which would have been an appropriate response if you hadn't realized that before, that a lie is punishable the same as being a murderer or any other terrible humanized thing you can think of that a human would say, oh, that's really bad. Well, when it comes to sin, they're all really bad, no matter what you thought of the human being. They all end in the second death when not taken care of. We can observe some things about the development of sin. Sin will have overcome us if we receive the final punishment. That's when we've been overcome by sin. Revelation 21.8, we just read, it talks about all these groups that end up in the second death, end up in the lake of fire which burneth with fire and brimstone. We will have overcome sin, though, if we can avoid this punishment and experience the glory of God is prepared for His children. So how can we be sure to overcome sin? And that's important for us all to make sure that we understand correctly in this life. That's why we always say, don't listen to the loud mouth up front. Make sure you're reading your Bible for yourself because you could go to a great church with great people and you could hear something that's incorrect. So you've got to be reading all the time. We need to stop our de the development of our sin 
at any one of the four points leading to the final punishment so that we don't end up in that second death. So if you're looking to overcome sin, to start with, change your desires. Desires can be controlled through thought. You might really, really, really desire something and you can really think about it and you can think to yourself, you know, that's really not as important as I have let it be. Or even, man, why do I care about that at all? Changing your desires would be a good step in lowering the amount of sinning you're doing. Since this is where the, uh, the process of sinning begins, it's the best place for us to begin. Now, that's not going to happen with everything. Some things are just really ground in us. Some of us just really desire to eat when we're hungry. Some of us really, really like the things that we like. But we can still work on a conscious effort to change our desires. Some of them can be changed. Most of them can be changed. Even the ones that cannot be changed could be better controlled. Bear in mind that this is part of Christian growth, to change our desires. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove... What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? It's like that song we sing that starts out, Less of God and more of thee, and by the end of the song, it's all of God and none of me. As we go through our spiritual growth, we need to be working on changing our desires to be more godly, to be more about Jesus, to be more about how can I be a better servant of the Lord today than at the beginning of our walk when we're like, oh yeah, I go to church. As we grow, our desires should grow with us into better things. Galatians 5.24 says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with their affections and lusts. So how do we change our desires? If you notice, the Word of God has always been instrumental in helping people overcome sin. No matter how far back you go in the Bible, it's an important part of your walk. Psalms 119.11 Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. That was written a long, 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 long time ago and it's still relevant today. You spend time in the Bible, the more time you spend in the Bible, the more positive outcome you're going to see in your life. If you spend your time with negative people, negative places, negative thoughts, negative energies, your life will get worse, and if you spend them positively, then things will get better. How much more positive can you spend it than to spend it with God and His Word and prayer and fellowship? Matthew 4, 3 through 10, we're going to read that. It says, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But when he answered, he said, it is, is it not written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the God of God. Of, out of the mouth of God. If you're not familiar here lately with this story out of the Bible, Jesus had fasted longer than any of us have even conceived the idea of going without food. Most of us probably couldn't make it a whole day. He'd been quite a few days. And he had the power to do so, so he had desire, he loved to eat. He had an opportunity, of course he could have made them stones and a bread. But instead, he used scripture because God's word had he hid in his heart so he might not sin against him. So that didn't work out. He quoted scripture, so the devil goes on. The devil takes him into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. Say unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning me, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. 
Satan tried to misuse the scripture. Jesus probably could have jumped, and if him or the Lord either one saw fit, he would have been just fine, but that wasn't the right thing to do. He comes back with more scripture. Jesus saith unto him, it is, it is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kings of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then Jesus saith to him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Oh, a good part of this is the nature of Christ in himself. But he still took time as he was growing up to study. At one point his parents even headed home and he was still in the temple reasoning with the uh, priests and the leaders at the time because it was important to be in the scripture. And it was important because when this temptation arose he was able to come back with scripture and say, well, isn't it written? Well, doesn't the Lord want? Well, isn't this what Jesus would say? That's a really good way for us to start changing our desire. Are we doing our daily Bible reading? Do we read the Bible even every other day? Do we leave our Bible reading for when we're at church? The more we spend in the Bible, the better prepared we'll be for temptation when it arises. And the more we can change our own desires to help avoid temptation altogether. To see how the Word of God can change our desires, as we read of God's love, long-suffering, and mercy, we're going to desire to serve Him. Psalms 116, 12-14 What shall I render unto the Lord? for all his benefits toward me. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord, now in the presence of all his people. You can't possibly believe in Christ, love the Lord, read more and more about what all he's done for you, and not develop a stronger desire to serve him. As we read of sin and its damnable consequences, we should come to hate sin. 119.104, still Psalms, Though uh, thy precepts I get on, through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The more we learn about sin and about what sin will lead to, the more we should hate it, and that'll help change our desires all the more. So, the more we study God's word, the less likely we will have the desire to sin. Less likely, it's still going to be there, no matter how hard we try. But less likely is better. Thereby, beginning to overcome sin by nipping it in the bud. But changing our desire takes time. We're not going to wake up tomorrow and have that all done. While engaging in the process of changing our desires, what else can we do? Well, we can limit our opportunities. Remember, we're tempted only when there is both desire and opportunity. Just because you desire something doesn't mean there will ever be an opportunity for it. Somebody might say, man, I'd sure love to rob a bank and get away with it. Well, you're not going to have that opportunity. This is 2020. They're going to catch you. So even if you maybe would act on it with the opportunity, you're not going to have it, you're not going to do that. If you're limiting your opportunities, that's going to help you to fight temptation. So while we work on changing our desires, which should be a lifelong process, just like our walk with Christ, we should limit the opportunities to fulfill wrongful desire. This can be done by asking for God's providential help, as, as Jesus taught. Matthew 6.13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. How much better of an example can we get than that of Christ? That's a prayer that any one of us could say any day of the week. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Matthew 26, 41 says, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, yet the, but the flesh is weak. Pray for the Lord to give you strength when the situation does arise. And if you know that if you go over here, you're going to be tempted, don't go over here. you got 14 ways to drive home from work, and if you pass this one, you know you're going to stop and do something really dumb. Drive a different way home. We can cooperate with God by purposely avoiding situations that might excite wrongful desires. He's there to back us up, give us strength, help give us some wisdom. But we can't just say, well, God will protect me, so let me just drive through the lion's den. Let me just tempt the Lord my God. We still can be smart enough to say, I'm just not even going to go over there. I know better. I know that it could end badly for me. I'm not going to do it. We need to be following the example of David, Psalms 101, 3, and 4. He says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. David was a man of prayer. David asked God for strength and wisdom and help and comfort and whatever else. But he's saying here, I'm not going to set bad things in front of me. I'm not going to keep bad company. I'm going to make the conscious choice to avoid these tempting situations. We can look at the example of Job. Job 31.1 I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I look upon a maid? He's being a little more specific here, but at the end of the day, he's saying, I know that this is something I'm tempted with. I'm not even going to look over there. Avoid those whose evil behavior encourage us to sin with them. We've all had those friends or so-called friends who are like, oh, come on, you can come do this bad thing. Again, David sets a good example. Psalms 101, 6 and 7. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the Lord, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. David made it clear that he was going to try to keep good company and not hang out with those who were dragging down. Paul also adds his warning, 1 Corinthians 15.33, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. But we will unlikely remove every desire and opportunity to sin in this life. Things are going to happen. Things are going to stumble in front of us. We're going to make a wrong turn. Life's going to happen. We're human beings. Temptation will arise, even if we can lower it. So what can we do? Well, we can exercise self-control. And it's like any other muscle. It needs to be exercised. If you want strong arms, you've got to work them out. If you want strong self-control, you have to take the conscience, time, and effort to build that self-control. Remember, it becomes sin when you yield to action in fulfilling our sinful desires. If we can control ourselves as to not yield, then we can overcome sin. How does the Christian exercise self-control? Well, self-control is but one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit... Is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, we know there is no law. So when we become a Christian, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Acts 2.38 tells us that. Acts 5.32 tells us that. So if we have the Holy Spirit, we should be having fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is God's instrumental agent by which He imparts strength to us. Ephesians 3.16 says that He would grant you according to His riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit and the inner man. So if we're strengthened by the Spirit, we're able to put to death the deeds of the body. 
but that's not going to accidentally happen. We need to use our self-control. We need to use our free thought and say, you know, it'd be better if I did this a different way. Romans 8, 12, and 13, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. As Paul said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. He didn't say, I can do it if I want to. He didn't say, well, Christ strengthened me, so it's just going to happen on its own. He said, I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. It's through faith in God's word that the Christian believes that he has this divine help. So if we have no faith, we have nothing. If we have faith in the wrong thing, we have nothing. We need to have it in God's word. We need to have it in Jesus Christ. So it's through the faith, through our belief in God's word, that the Christian has divine help. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that is that worketh in us. It's certainly proper to pray for it, as Paul did in behalf of the Ephesians. Ephesians 3.16 said that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by the spirit of the inner man. Equally important, though, is to act upon it, trusting that you are not alone as you try to do God's will. Philippians 2.12 and 13 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In the end, just do it. You know the right thing, just do it. The Christian then has no excuse for yielding to temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Therefore, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above, that ye are able. But will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape it, that ye may be able to bear it. We're going to be tempted throughout life, but that doesn't mean that we have to follow through with that temptation and sin. There's always another option. There may be times when we don't take advantage of the strength God provides through His Spirit, and we sin. We're human beings, it's going to happen. So what do we do? We obtain forgiveness. We don't go and sin because, oh, yay, I can obtain forgiveness. No, we need to do these other things too. And then when we do slip up, we need to obtain forgiveness. Remember that sin is victorious when it results in punishment. That's when we've lost a sin. When we die in our sins, that's when it's over. If we obtain forgiveness through the blood of Christ, we can avoid the punishment of the second death and, there, death and thereby still overcome sin. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the proportionation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Yeah, Christ truly is a proportionation for our sins. Thank you. I never get that word right. It's okay. I'm just trying to help you. No, I'm good with it. I butcher a lot of words, so I won't be offended. What he said for our sins, that's the most best way I can do it. By his blood, we are forgiven of past sins when we unite with him in baptism. Acts 2.38, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So by his blood we can be forgiven of present sins when we repent, pray, and confess our sins to God. 
Acts 8, 22 says, Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine inner heart may be forgiven thee. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At any time, the Christian can overcome sins that were committed by repenting and confessing them to God. You can't just say, oh, well, I sinned again, no big deal. I became a Christian 20 years ago, so I can live however I want. It really, and that's a whole other study, but it ought to just tear you up when you realize, man, I let God down again. I did this thing, and I knew better, and I, man, I just shouldn't have. We should want to go to God about it. Some quick observations about overcoming sin. I'll try to wrap up. We're almost there. If you notice carefully, you should have seen that each of the four points in the development of sin, God is able and willing to help us overcome sin. He's there for us every step of the way. It's like the footprints in the sand or the parody of that one that you read. He's always there for you. The question is whether or not you accepted the help you were offered. God helps us to control our desires by providing His Word to, our, to renew our minds. The question is, have we taken our time to read the Bible as often as we can? If you're only in your Bible once or twice a year, well, you're giving up 360-some opportunities for help. God helps us to limit the opportunity through His providence as we pray for some. Well, if we're not praying or asking God for anything, or even keeping our eye out for the help He's offering. Again, we're passing up the opportunity for the help. God helps us to exercise self-control over our action through His Spirit, strengthening the inner man. Just like any other help, though, we've got to make the decision to follow through and take the help. God helps us to obtain forgiveness through the blood of His Son as we repent and pray. Grace of God's a wonderful thing, but He's not going to hold us down and cram it down our throat and get a plunger and shove it down in there. We have to accept that grace. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with temptation, also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. That old story somebody used to tell would be real fitting here about the guy who's in a flooded town and every time somebody comes by to help him, no, God's going to save me. You, you can just keep going with your truck. No, take your boat and go. God's going to save me. No, your helicopter can move on. God's going to save me. And then he dies. He says, God, I thought you were going to save me. God says, I sent three guys to come get you. I can't help the fact you didn't take the help you were offered. It's a fitting story for what we're trying to convey here. God will always be there for you. But don't be too proud to take the help. In this discussion, we've concentrated on sins of commission. That is, sins we commit by overt action on our part. There's also sins of omission. Sins which come from failing to do the right thing. James 4.17 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him... Is sin. You have the choice before you. You can, oh, man, that's too hard. I don't feel like it. This other thing is more important to me. This would be more fun. We could fill in the blank with a lot of different things that people would use for that. But at the end of the day, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. It might not be necessarily I was tempted, the opportunity was there, and I acted on it even though I knew better. James 4.17 is telling us it could simply be I knew to do the right thing and didn't want to. Overcoming these 
this, these sins is similar. Change our desire so we want to do what is right. Instead of desiring the easy way out or whatever the desire may be, desire to do good. Exercise self-control so we act the way that we should when we have the opportunity. And exercise is there for a reason. You've got to develop that as a skill in your life. When guilty of sins of omission, obtain forgiveness in the same way. Sin is sin. It doesn't matter if it's murder or a lie or whatever sin you want to put in there for your sin of choice. They're all the same. They all affect you the same way. And they're all taken care of in one of two of the same ways. Eternal death or you going to the Lord the way he said to. In learning the four points at which we may overcome sin, don't think that we can simply wait until we reach the fourth point to act. That's not the way we're supposed to do this. I'll just go on and keep sinning, and then I'll just, I already know I'd be forgiven. Oh, here's temptation. Oh, I can do that. I can just be forgiven. That's the wrong mindset. We need to try everything we can on our side to try to avoid it altogether, and know that that fourth spot is kind of a backup. I've messed up. Lord, forgive me. Not, I knew it was wrong. I did it anyhow because I knew you would forgive me. Thanks for forgiving me. We need to go about it with the idea that sin's a horrible thing and we don't want any part of it. There are several reasons why we should not go ahead and sin and then ask for forgiveness with the idea ahead of time. Oh, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness. In baptism, we're freed from the power of sin and should now present ourselves to God as servants of righteousness. Being a good one. That, I've got Romans 6, 1 through 23. I'm going to leave that reading as homework for everybody because it's quite a lengthy read and I'm already into everybody's lunch. We can receive forgiveness for sin, but we might still suffer the temporal consequences of sin. You might still get your forgiveness and not go to hell, but things are going to happen to you right here in this life from sin. Uh, a really big bad one I'll throw out there just because it'll illustrate it quickly. If somebody's running around behind their spouse's back, they might get forgiven and still go to heaven, but they can still destroy their family while they're on earth. And there are all kinds of levels above and below that of what the earthly consequences could be depending on what your sin is and how it plays out. But even if you escape the second death, that doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen as a result of your sin. And it might not be you that gets hurt. It might be you and or other folks that get hurt from your sin while you're in this life. Galatians 6, 7-9, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not be weary in the well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. If we allow sin to deceive us so as to become hardened, we may get to the point of sinning willfully and lose our salvation. That's another reason not to go into that with the mindset of, I can sin and just be forgiven. Every time you do it, it gets a little bit easier. You don't want to get to the point where it's just no big deal. Hebrews 3, 12-14 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our consequences steadfast unto the end. Don't take the grace of God lightly and attempt to abuse it. Grace is a great thing. We're lucky to have it. We should be appreciative enough of it to go about things the right way. How much better it would be to praise God for His grace and use it to overcome sin in our lives. 
Many, er, may the promise found in uh, James 1.12 help motivate us to do just that. Blessed is a man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. A couple questions to stimulate your thinking as we close out here. Are you engaging in a daily Bible study program which will help you develop the proper kind of desires? If you're not, that's something you really need to talk about with yourself and your family and think about. And no matter whether you are or not, you need to look at whether or not what you're doing is enough to keep your soul fed. Do you watch and pray lest you enter into temptation, or do you just wait to see what happens? Do you avoid circumstances and companions that you know would entice you to sin? Do you limit yourself from people, places, and things that are going to drag you down? It's not saying write people off entirely and never talk to them again. No, they need to get some good influence from you. You just need to make sure you're not letting them drag you down. If you're with somebody once or twice a year that's usually a bad influence on you, turn it into a Bible study. Make sure it's at a place where whatever you guys usually do together can't happen. You need to be avoiding circumstances and companions that will entice you to sin. Do you pray that God will strengthen you by His Spirit and the inner man? Is that a prayer anybody in here has ever prayed before? And do you ask God daily to forgive your sins and help you overcome sin in your life? Do you even take the time when you're praying to think about how much you have or have not sinned that day? That's another one that I'm going to add to the list. We all are sinners, whether we're actively choosing to sin or it just happens here and there as we work on not doing it, which means that we all need Christ Jesus. We're going to offer the invitation like we always do. If you've never become a Christian, you need to have Christ or you can never take care of your sin problem. Without Him, you are nothing. A little bit different than the usual one, but it works. If you are a Christian and you haven't lived up to your end of the bargain or you need any support or anything else from your family, the invitation is open to anybody who needs it. Respond in whatever way you can as we all stand and sing.